Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And uh, just, just to save a little bit of time, we're not going to read the whole text. Really, we're going to split this up and not cover the whole story at, with, without looking, Daniel chapter 3, who, who are the main, there's three main characters, who are they? Somebody in the youth group, you remember? Timmy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yes, that's exact. I was expecting Timmy to have the answer, the rest of you, come on, get with it, Daniel chapter 3, and uh, this is a great story, I'm looking forward uh, to going through some of this tonight, Daniel chapter 3 verse 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. Now, does that sound familiar? Remember the last time we were in Daniel 2 and he had a dream about an image and part of it was gold as well, but that part was just the head was gold, which represented Babylon. We're going to see, I think maybe he's trying to send a message here to maybe overcome the dream that he had or the interpretation of Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent together together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, he says, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso faileth not or falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And stop giggling at the instrument names, okay? So, verse 8. Wherefore, at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Notice the accusative tone there. There are some that you put in charge. And basically these tattletales said you put them in charge over the affairs of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury 
commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what, that what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Wow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. Now these are teenagers, just remember. I love this answer. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. And these three words, but if not be it known unto thee o king that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up Amen. i mean i we could stop there i guess i guess yeah. get goosebumps and i get all excited just the fact that these three teenagers looked at the most powerful man in the world and straight in the eye and said we're not going to bow and, and I love their resolve, but, but there's a principle here that I think will help us uh, if we can catch a little bit of what they had. I think it'll be a help to us tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. I pray that you'd help us then to see the truth here, that you'd help my voice, help my strength, and that you'd help me to convey it clearly tonight. Lord, we want to stand like these young men stood. But if we're going to stand in the face of the pressure then we have to uh, view things correctly. And sometimes we get off kilter, we get off line a little bit. And we, we start to view the life that, that Babylon offers and think, well, maybe that's worth it, when really in the end it's never worth it. So I pray that you'd help us tonight to put ourselves in this situation and to come up with some applications, some truths that we can take home with us tonight. Lord, we need you. Pray that you bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a lot of exciting uh, stories, a lot of exciting chapters in the Bible. There's so many highlights. You've got the Red Sea. You've got Jericho, David and Goliath. Uh, you've got Daniel and the lion's den. Then all the New Testament stories of Jesus and the miracles and and all of that, but I would put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right near the top. This story of the fiery furnace, these three young men, it's one of the best accounts in all of the Bible, and I think most of us would agree. Um, as a kid, this was one of those that captured my attention, and I hope it, it does yours as well. What I, what I appreciate and what I noticed then first, though, as we come into this, God's hand is clearly on these young men. Uh, God has clearly blessed them because of their stand already. In chapter 1, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had refused to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine. They stood with purpose. They decided in their hearts. They had a principle, a scriptural principle and purpose and said, we will not stand or we will not eat the king's meat. We will not drink the king's wine. Uh, we trust that God can do for us uh, through eating a different diet. He can do for us something better than what everyone else will get. 
And, and sure enough, by the end of that test, they were 10 times better than all the other young people in that situation. Uh, they, so they, they decided we're going to stand with purpose. And by standing with purpose, they had a payoff. And if you want a payoff, you're going to have to stand with purpose. You're going to have to decide, if I want to get to the end, to that point there, then I have to stand today. I have to make a decision today. And God blessed them for their refusal to compromise. Then God had also blessed them um, through their, their faith in seeking God for the uh, interpretation of the king's dream. This is something that Daniel specifically had kind of worked out. And they together, they sought the Lord uh, and he gave Daniel the interpretation back in Daniel 2. And as a result, God had exalted them and lifted them up even more. They were already blessed. They had already been put in positions of authority. But when they came up with the interpretation through Daniel, then he set them over the affairs in even higher positions in the kingdom of Babylon. So they've already been blessed. They're already in a good position, in a good spot as young men from a different country. By the time we get to Daniel 3, it's clear that what these three have is real. They have a real, stand, real walk with God. They have a genuine stand for God. They have a testimony already. They are genuinely committed to the Lord. But loyalty to God doesn't mean that things get easy. Because we get to Daniel chapter 3 and we find out they're about to face the most difficult trial yet. Because Nebuchadnezzar comes up with this plan, he builds this image, and it requires all of these leaders in the land to come to where he's built the image and, and worship the image, bow to the image, and prove their loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. Understand that his motivation was not just worship, his motivation was finding out who was loyal to him or not. And so this image then, he constructs this image, and it's outside of Babylon, about six miles, in a plain called Dura, it says. And so he, he wants to put it in a spot where it's visible. And I'm imagining that this part of the land didn't have very many trees. Maybe it was up on a hill or on a bluff, where this 90-foot statue would be very visible for miles around. 90 feet tall. I mean, this is an, an incredible uh, statue, this image. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. You say, I can't believe they could build something like that. Well, that seemed to be something they did back in, in those days. It's not uncommon in history to have these gigantic uh, uh, these idols or these statues or, or these monuments. I mean, it's pretty amazing what they were able to build in the ancient world. Uh, the, the giant sphinxes of Egypt were 240 feet long and over 60 feet tall. Uh, there were statues the size of the, of the Statue of Liberty um, in, in, in certain places in Greece. I mean, th this was pretty amazing. And Nebuchadnezzar, he, he says, well, if they're doing it, I'm going to do it. So he builds this image, a 90-foot tall statue, and it's made of gold from head to toe. Now, the text doesn't tell us what the statue is, is representing, um, but in Daniel's dream, look back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. This is Daniel's interpretation of the dream of an image that Nebuchadnezzar had had. Look at verse, Daniel 2, verse 38. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, 
and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So in this image, we talked about this last time. I showed an image uh, on the screen about this giant statue. And it had a head of gold and torso made of silver. And, and you go down brass and clay, feet of iron, those things. And, and, uh, and so the head in that original dream was made of gold. And we know, according to verse 39, 38, thou art the head of gold, Daniel says in his interpretation. Verse 39, though, says, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. So he says in, this, in the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, the head was made of gold, but the arms and the, and the chest were made of silver. And, and that represented the gold, according to Daniel's interpretation, the gold represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And then, though, if you read there in verse 39, though another kingdom comes along and, and conquers them, and we know that to be the, the Medo-Persian Empire, they come along and they conquer Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and, and that's represented by the chest of silver. But this statue is made from gold, out of gold from head to toe. So I don't know about you, but as I read that, it started to dawn on me that Nebuchadnezzar was making a statement by making this entire statue out of gold. Because in his dream, Daniel said, that head, that represents Babylon, but it will very soon give way to the next kingdom. And I believe, in my mind, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, Oh, you really think somebody's going to conquer me? I'm going to make the whole statue out of gold. If I represent, if Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon is represented by gold, this whole statue is going to be made of gold because there's nobody that's going to conquer me. We find out in this very text that he has, he's very full of himself in this text. He says, you think there's really a God that's going to be able to stand up against me? And I believe this is Nebuchadnezzar's way of, of showing his pride and letting people know that no one's going to conquer my kingdom. So he builds this statue made of gold from head to toe and he forces all the leadership of Babylon to come and bow down before it. Now, some people might ask the question, where is Daniel? Well, I don't know for sure, but he's clearly not in the crowd because if we know anything about Daniel, he would have been standing too. Now, he's probably back at home. He wasn't called to come and prove his loyalty. Why? Well, because he's already proven his loyalty to the king. The king already trusts Daniel. Daniel has already made himself very valuable. And so Daniel was not called to this, uh, to, to this bowing, this time of worship before the idol but his three friends were. They were told to come, and, and then when they get there, this herald comes and, and makes this decree and says, when the music plays, all of you are to bow down. When you hear all the instruments play, your job is to bow down before the image, and if you don't bow down, here's a little bit more incentive, okay? Here's a little bit more motivation to bow. If you don't bow down, we're going to throw you in the fire. Now, sometimes I look around on Sundays and there are not people singing. You know, you know what we should do? We should have a big fire pit. It's like if you don't sing, here's motivation. Are you ready? No, just kidding. We're not going to do that. No, it may be good motivation, though. It would have been motivating for me. If I hear this, this rule that says if I, if I, when the music plays, you better start singing. If you don't start singing, you're going to be thrown in the fire. I would have thought twice about not singing. 
And, and Nebuchadnezzar has already proven that he is able and willing to use a fiery furnace for execution. We know that he had already uh, executed a couple false prophets that way, according to Jeremiah 29. So he's already done this. He's already proven it. Uh, he already has this reputation. And because of that, in verse 7, therefore at that time when all the people heard all of those instruments, it says they fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So most of the crowd, right away, they bow down and worship the image. There are three exceptions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now it's interesting, verse 8. Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Now, I mean, just imagine. Uh, so I'm going to have you three guys right here. Everyone stand. Just go ahead and stand. You're looking sleepy anyway. Come on, go ahead. Okay, so we're all standing. Yeah, it's okay. It's, you're allowed to do things outside the box at church. It's okay. Right, so we're all singing. When you hear the song begin to play, if you're loyal to King Nebuchadnezzar, then I want you to sit down. Okay, you, you say, well, I'm, I'm loyal only to God. No, just for the sake of illustration, help me out. When the music plays, sit down, okay, except for you three. Ready? Amazing grace. I doubt it was amazing grace. <laughs> but I didn't want to sing a secular song in church, you know. Uh, the only one I know is happy birthday anyway. So, <laughs> so, so, in, uh, so in all this, everyone else sits down. And is it pretty obvious there are three guys still standing? Sure. Like there's, there's no way they could have hidden this. Uh, there's no way that they could have done this without being noticed. Everyone sees that they're still standing. So you guys can sit down. I, I don't know. I might do that illustration again, depending on how tired everyone feels, okay? So they're obviously still standing, and everyone sees them. And I don't know where Nebuchadnezzar is. It doesn't seem like Nebuchadnezzar's aware that they're standing. It seems like, you know, maybe he doesn't see it, but everyone around them sees it. And so these tattletales, they come to Nebuchadnezzar. And they butter him up. Oh, king, we are... You know, you're the greatest. The Bible says, though, in verse 8, that they came to accuse. And I looked at that word accuse. It says they accused the Jews. And the word accuse literally means to devour like a beast. You know, you've seen a wild beast devour an animal, you know, just go after it. That's what the word literally means. They were so ravenously angry at these three young men, that they would have done anything to destroy them. And I find it interesting they call them, in verse 8, they know they're Jews. And this sounds pretty familiar. You've got Jews being singled out to be destroyed. You know, don't think that this is new, what's happening with all the anti-Semitism and the things going on. And I'm not saying that the Jewish people uh, deserve anything special because they've rejected God largely. But don't assume that, that God is done working with the Jews because he's not. He's not done with the nation of Israel. But it's interesting that ever since they've existed, people have hated them. 
People have sought to destroy them. It's happening right here. It's happening in our day right now. There, there's people that are so angry. They want to destroy the, the, the nation of Israel. You, can, you, you sense this anger in the accusation. They come and they say, verse 11, Whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. That's what you said. But there are certain Jews, remember, devouring, that's the word. They're devouring, accusing. There are certain Jews whom thou hast said over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. What are you going to do about it? Isn't that the idea? Isn't that the way they, that's what I get. They're so angry. They can't, they can't even think straight. And they're saying, these Jews, these three young men, they don't worship your God. They're not loyal to you. They don't care about you. I mean, they're, they're, they're probably Dallas Cowboy fans. I mean, they're trying to come up with all the worst insults they can. Hey, I'm a Cowboys fan, so, you know, I can handle it. We've always been persecuted, right, Brother Ken? Brother Jim, yeah. Hey, there's three of us. We could be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story, so... Their people had been, I mean, they could have easily said, you know what, let's just bow. Right? I mean, couldn't they, couldn't they, these three young men, couldn't they have literally just said, you know what, it's just going to be easier. Their, their people, our, our people have been de defeated. Jerusalem's in shambles. Our temple's been destroyed. Why would we keep doing this? Why would we keep living for God when it seems like he's abandoned us? Why would we keep operating as if God cares about us? I mean, nobody is going to know. And, and as leaders, honestly, Shadrach, Meshach, you know, I guess Abednego's talking. You know, as leaders, don't we have a responsibility? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar put us in the position we're in. I mean, this could have easily been a conversation. I don't think it was because of their character. But if it was you and me in this position, I might be starting to reason things out. I might start talking about, okay, maybe we could just do this. Uh, you know, we've been trained at their, the expense of the Babylons. We have expectations put on us. We should be loyal to the king, our government. You know, everyone else is bowing. And, and so and, uh, you guys have noticed, even our own people, even the other Jews, they're bowing. Uh, maybe, maybe, guys, we could just bow physically. And in our hearts, we know, us three, we're going to know, we don't really worship this God. We worship the one true Jehovah. In our hearts, we'll still be right. But just to smooth things over, just to make things easier, let's just bow. Now, I don't believe this conversation was even had. I believe that they had already made up their mind. But can you see how in a situation like that, if it was you and me, we'd be talking about this? At least I would. I'd be thinking about my family. I mean, I'd be thinking about my future. And, and I'd be saying, maybe there's a way to do this. And say, well, but what kept them moored? What kept them planted where they were? What kept them from drifting? Well, because they knew God. And they knew his word. And they knew, like Exodus 20 says... Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down to any other image. Uh, they, they had something that was keeping them grounded in the middle of all the emotion, in the middle of, of the difficult decision. They were guided by principle. They were guided with a sense of purpose and an attachment to scripture. And it made more sense in the moment to preserve their lives. But they were so concerned about the principle, about God's word, about pleasing the Lord, that they were able to say, no, we're not going to bow in the face of very serious pressure. So Nebuchadnezzar confronts them. He, he couldn't believe that they would defy his authority. He's, he's upset. His reaction, it makes it obvious that this is very personal to him. He's not just setting up a God so that they would worship somebody else. He's setting up a God so that they'll worship him. And whether or not he comes out and says it, the worship of that image was a reflection of their loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar himself. He's angry. You know, I do find it interesting, look at verse 13, that Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they, then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now listen, I, I believe that their past history, their testimony, is the reason he says the next thing he does. Now, if ye be ready... That at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. You know what he does? He gives him a second chance. He says, you know what? Okay, I wonder if he's kind of like, these guys have been really good to me. These guys have been loyal. I really like these guys. He says, now listen. If you're ready now, we're going to do this again. You're going to hear the music. All the instruments are going to play. And if you're ready, then now, this time, to bow, then it's all good. Well, it's all good. That's the Hebrew, I think, translation. All good. Yeah, this is not a big deal. We can overcome this. I'll give you a second chance. I think that their testimony had put them in a position to have a second chance. Because did Nebuchadnezzar, did he say you're going to get a second chance? No. No, he was ready to, to throw you in the furnace if you didn't bow. But he gives them another chance because of who they are. And I believe that's, that's a good thing on their part. But I also think this is a bigger temptation now. Because now they've been given another chance to bow. He gives them another shot at this. And maybe they start talking again. Guys, it might be worth it. That fire is hot. And then Nebuchadnezzar says this, verse 15, But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Wow. That's, that's blasphemy there, isn't it? As if he, Nebuchadnezzar, is powerful enough to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God? Boy. You know, so that's, that's where we come to in this story. And obviously, we'll read their answer in just a moment. We've already read it once. But I just want you to, to pay attention, okay? And then we'll, uh, this is a principle that we'll focus on the rest of the time. Just consider the choices, the choice they're making. Option number one is they can bow like everyone else. 
and bowing, if they would bow, that actually gives them freedom. They can go on living the life they've been living. That's the easy thing to do. Bowing was what everyone else is doing. It, it's very easy to bow. It takes hardly any time at all. Once the bowing is over, you stand up and you just go about your day. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty appealing. So that's this option over here, bowing. Well, this option over here is refuse to bow and face a fiery furnace. I mean, they have God's word. They know God is on their side. Uh, they've already proven that they're willing to take a stand when nobody else does. They have confidence in God's ability to deliver them, but there's no guarantee that he will deliver them. There's no promise made. So understand, they are choosing between standing on principle or bowing to preserve their lives. See, bowing, to just to preserve yourself, it means you can just live like everyone else who bows. It means that you can just fit in, that you go on living the life that you've been living. But standing, refusing to bow, means there's a chance that you get burned up in a fire. If God does deliver them, then that's a good thing, and, and it's a miracle, and who knows what he might turn into. But what if he doesn't deliver us? I mean, what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't show up? What if he doesn't deliver? And we're going to be burned to death if he doesn't. And listen, they're very aware. They're very aware that this may not turn out the way they want it to. Let's look again at their answer. Shadrach, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Meaning, you know what they're saying? We've already made up our minds. Like, we don't have to consult. We don't have to go back into the back room. We don't need 10 minutes to decide. We're not careful. We, we've already made up our minds here. Ready? Here's what we've decided. Nebuchadnezzar's probably thinking, okay, they're going to bow. That's good. No, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us <laughs> from the burning fiery furnace. And, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. I mean, this is pretty amazing. He say, they say, if, if our God, who the God we serve, we know he's capable. But either way, he will deliver us out of your hand. You know what he's saying? Either way, after this is over, he will deliver us one way or the other. See, it, it, he'll either save us from the fire or he'll put us in the fire and then take us home. And we'll be delivered. See, they have the right perspective. They know that God can deliver. The problem is they don't know if he will. So they say then in verse 18, these three big words, but if not. But if not, meaning we might take, we might take a stand, we might get thrown into the fiery furnace, and God doesn't deliver us. And listen, Nebuchadnezzar, if he doesn't, we want you to know, king, we will not serve thy gods. We will not worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Wow. I mean, they're honest in their answer. It could be that God does not deliver them. They might die if they choose to stand. But they still emphatically tell the king, we will not bow no matter what. And here's the, the truth I want to give you tonight, the interesting point as we come to the kind of the, 
the main crux here. Even with their lives at stake, they were not driven by deliverance. I mean, even with their lives at stake, they weren't driven by deliverance. I mean, think again about the choice. You can stand and possibly die or bow and be delivered. Where do you think most people would be driven? Where do you think most people are going to make their decision? Um, Death or deliverance? Well, most people are going to choose deliverance. See, uh, whatever choice um, is going to keep me out of the fire, that's probably what I'm going to do. But that's not their mindset. See, there was something about their relationship with God that was worth more to them than deliverance. See, they valued God more than they valued deliverance. They would rather die for God than live like Babylonians. Isn't that amazing? I mean, to be fair, death wasn't guaranteed. God might deliver them. But they didn't know that. Still, they were willing to say this. No existence, death, is better than that existence. No existence, death, is better than existing like the Babylonians do. See, they viewed living the Babylonian life as a bigger loss than dying for God. That's amazing. And before we think this sounds extreme, it's actually the call of every disciple. See, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, for whosoever will lose his life for, sorry, for whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. See, what Jesus was saying was that you can preserve your life and you can bow. You can live like the world. You can do what the world asks you to. You can submit yourself to the world. In the moment, it feels like you're winning, but in the end, you lose your life. But if you will, for my sake, die to yourself and say, no, God is worth more to me than whatever the world has to offer. And in the moment, it might feel like you're, that you're losing. In the moment, it might feel like you don't have any gains. But in the end, he says it's all gains. Because you have chosen to live the life that I want you to live. Listen, we all have the same choice. We can choose to live the Babylonian life, live for ourselves, fit in, bow to the demands of the world, or we can give up our life and leave it in God's hands. It's exactly what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They chose death over deliverance. They decided that living like that was not living at all. They chose to place their life in God's hands and leave the results up to him. You know, they could have saved their lives. They could have bowed. And they would have lived. But if they had been living the Babylonian life, in their mind... That's not living at all. They'd gotten to the point in their relationship with God that they realized that the Babylonian life is not worth living. And at some point, they'd gotten to the place where they realized the only life worth living is the life lived for God. Even if they died, that was better than the life the Babylonians were living. 
See, we have to choose what it really means to live. I mean, is it really, is a life really worth living if you have all the money you ever dreamed of? I mean, that's, that's kind of where we land on these things. Is, is this life, if I give myself to the Babylonian way, I could, if I bow myself to the idols of the world and I get all the money I could ever have, that's really, that's living. That's a life worth living. Except let's go and read the, the uh, record, the biographies of all the lottery winners in, the American, in American history and see how it turned out for them. Because you suddenly find out that getting all the money you ever dreamed of isn't really living at all. And actually for most of them it ruined their lives. Let's go back and see all the people, young people who bowed themselves to the idol of a career. And said, you know what, I'm going to give myself to the idol of the job I've always dreamed of. And I know God over here, he wants me to make some sacrifices. But man, that's the death of my dreams. I don't want to give up on my dreams. I'm going to give myself to the career I've always wanted. And then you get the career that you've always wanted if you're fortunate enough to do it. And find out it's not really living at all. Because if you leave God out of it and you pursue all the dreams that bowing before the idol brings you, you find out it doesn't give you any sense of inner peace or satisfaction. You only find that over on that side. But right now, now you're so far into this, you don't find yourself turning around again. And you realize it doesn't actually give me what I was hoping for. This isn't living at all. I think, about, uh, I think about men, you know, we have in a culture that, that is just consumed with lust. You know, it's everywhere and, and it's on your phones and it's, it's on our computers and it's everywhere we look. And, and we need a revival, I think, even in this church. I, I don't even, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But, but if what their numbers are accurate, what they're saying in churches like ours, then we've got men and women now bound up in lust. And we think, well, if I die to that, then I don't have anything to enjoy. And I just, that's not really living. But when you come over here and find yourself in the bonds of sin that you cannot get out of on your own, you find out, no, this isn't living at all. Right. Right. What I, it made all these promises. It said, this is living. Come over here and live here. And I'm telling you, it'll give you satisfaction. It never does. It binds you to sin and you're in prison. You think, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm telling you, the world, the idols of the world have all of these offers that they're making us. And it says, just come and bow. You're going to find out what real living really is. And then you give yourself to it and find out. It never delivers on the promises that you thought it was going to. We've got to get to the place, back to the place where we recognize that discipleship is not giving in to everything we wanted. No, discipleship is saying no to those things and saying yes to the more restrictive life and finding out that when we submit ourselves to the life that God has for us, it's better than living over here has ever been. And how do we do this? Well, we need to decide that God is worth more than anything the Babylonian life has to offer. He's worth more than deliverance from all the hardships. Sometimes we do that. We think, well, you know, if, uh, if, if I live for God, I'm just going to face hardships. 
I'm not going to be accepted. I'm going to be the outcast. I'm going to, going to look different. I'm, people are going to know there's something different about me. And I, I just don't know if I, I want to live that life. That's hard. So we come over here thinking, well, this will give me the life that I've always wanted. And find out that actually that's much harder in the end than saying no to yourself over here at the beginning. This over here, what Jesus, the way he described it, it's gain versus loss. And in the moment, it feels like a loss, but in the end, it feel, it's a win. And over here, in the moment, it feels like a win, but in the end, it's a loss. If you want to live this way, you're going to have to decide that God is worth more than the acceptance of your peers. You're going to have to decide that in the moment, the idol that's calling you is to say, be popular. But God is saying, no, do right. And in the moment, it feels hard, and it doesn't seem fair, and nobody else is standing with you. But in the end, I'm telling you, young person, in the end, it's a win. You gain because you've done right before God. When you stand before him, you will not regret choosing God over acceptance. You have to decide that he's worth more than whatever the extra money would be that you would make if you, if you stopped giving to missions. I mean, have you ever do that math? I mean, sometimes I think, you know, we probably do. When things are tight, we're like, man, if I didn't give to missions, think about what else I could afford. I'm not saying that many people in here do it, but I know that some have. Say, man, we could afford a really nice car. We could get a bigger house. And you think, man, that's really living. So what you do is you pull back from what, you know, the Lord wants you to do. And you go all in living over here thinking this is really living. But in the end, when you stand before God and you've got nothing to show for your eternal investments, you find out, no, actually, that was really living. And I traded it all because I was convinced that the, world, the world's idols convinced me that I just bow myself to that idol and I could have all the good life I ever dreamed of. Now, you have to decide that God is worth whatever sleep you have to give up to walk with him. And in the moment, I'm telling you, it feels like a major loss. But in the end, it's a win. It's a gain. You have to decide that God is worth the Sundays you lose spending time in his house. I mean, you, you have to come to, these are decisions where all of us are going to have to make. Listen, it's never a loss when you stand for God. It may seem in the moment like you're losing, but it's always a win in the end. I think about, this has happened in scripture. Job, Job learned this principle. Job lost everything in the world's eyes. I mean, he lost his children, he lost his property, he lost his income, he lost his own health. But you know what he said? The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know what he was saying? That all the things that really seem like they make life worth living, they don't compare to knowing the Lord. He said, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? He said, though that he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he said, no. I know that there are things I would wish were different and it wasn't always easy for Job, but in the end he discovered that God was worth more than all the things that were compiling up on him. God was worth more than any deliverance from the hardships. See, life, here's the good point. Life with God and trouble is better than an easy life without him. Life with God and trouble is better than an easy life without him. 
The losses of life are better than living without the Lord. I think about Peter. Peter learned this principle in John 6. You know, when Jesus started teaching these hard sayings and, and the disciples that were following him started leaving, they went back and they said, you know, this isn't living. I mean, if I'm going to follow Jesus, he just said I have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What is he talking about? You know, that's not living. This is living. My, I'm just, I'm just going to go back to the life I've been living. That's living. And Jesus then turned to his disciples and he, he said, what did he say? You remember? Will ye also go away? And Peter, in a moment where he actually said something that, you know, it's not embarrassing. <laughs> He said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. He said, yeah, it's going to be hard. Peter was saying, yeah, this sounds hard. And it's just going to be a few of us standing over here. But this is where I found eternal life, Lord. So if I go over here and start saying, this is the life I want to live, then I'm giving up the one place I've ever found satisfaction and peace. And honestly, that's not worth it. Because why would I leave where you are and, and go somewhere else when you have given me everything that I've ever dreamed of? Uh, you know, Peter was saying, uh, we're, we're not uh, driven by lives of ease, Lord. Jesus, I'm, I'm not driven by having everything easy because I've been with you and I know you. And, when, and now that I know you, then you're worth much more than all the trappings that the world has to offer me. How real is this principle in your life? Let's just think about the troubles and then we'll start wrapping this up. Let's just think about the troubles that could arise and the difficulties and the decisions we have to make. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they dealt with a major test and it didn't stop them from serving God. What hardship could come in your life that would stop you from serving the Lord? And before you say, oh, nothing. No, be careful. Because countless Christians who once were called disciples have allowed something, an obstacle to come up in their lives and it caused them to bow. Whether it was, maybe they came face to face with a test, a trial, it was a burden, a hardship. They saw that fiery furnace and they turned around and said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go back to the life that I was living before. What would it take to stop you? I mean, if you suffered a, a, a tragic personal loss of someone very close to you, would that prevent you from still following after God? Have you found him to be more valuable than any relationship in your life? If you have, then, then even the loss in a personal way, a tough personal loss couldn't stop you from following God. But there are many who face a tragic loss who become casualties. What about a cancer diagnosis? Would that stop you? What about financial trouble? Could that stop you from following God? Or maybe it's something small. I know Christians that bow because they've been offended. It's not always some big trial. It's not always some big hardship. It's not always some big issue. No, it can be something as small as what somebody else says to you that you didn't like. And in the moment, you're looking at this and you're saying, 
Well, the Christian thing to do would be to stand here and take it like Jesus and not say anything because it's not worth it. And I'll let the Lord take care of it. But you know, we look over here and we say, but if I was living in the world, I could say whatever I want. I could do whatever I want. I could take revenge. I could look for retribution. That's really living. So we leave where we were and we come over here and we exact revenge and we let bitterness overtake us. And in 10 years, we look back and say, this wasn't really living. Because I've really lost everything I had. Because bitterness has emptied me out. And it's made me an ineffective Christian. And I lost all the things that I had simply because I was offended. Listen, until you come to the point that you recognize God is worth more than the Babylonian deliverance, then you are a potential casualty. See, have you truly come to the place that he's worth more than deliverance from your troubles? I mean, I don't even, no matter how hard life has been, that you can still say, yeah, it's hard over here, but honestly, life with God, that's really living. Because even when it's hard, I can have an internal peace that people all around me, they don't have. By the way, you've got to make this decision before the hardship comes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, we're not even careful to answer you in this matter because they had already decided that anything that was threatened against them or anything that was offered to them was not nearly as good as just standing for God because God was worth it. They had experienced him. They had already decided this is the person, this is the life I need to live. And they said, we're not going to let circumstances determine whether or not we stand. No, we're going to let God's value determine whether or not we stand. And if you have the proper view of God's value, then there's nothing that comes along that can trip you up. Because in the end, there's nothing that compares to your relationship with God. If you've never experienced life with God, you'll probably choose the Babylonian life when things get tough. But once you've had a taste of the goodness of God, walking with God, the peace that passes all understanding, then it doesn't really matter how hard life gets or how tempting that job offer is or how big that offense is because what you find value in is your relationship with God and that trumps everything else. I know this is a silly illustration. I heard Brother Hardy years ago give an illustration like this, so I decided to use one. Last winter, last winter was a trial for this Oki. I mean, it was us Oklahomans. We were, we were struggling. We, we, we tried to keep our heads up, but it was cold. It was snowy. Just kept coming one storm after another. And I, I literally remember I was out in my front driveway in front of the sidewalk, and I was, and I was shoveling again. And I looked up in our window. This is so stupid. I looked up in our window, and we have a. I have a recliner there that backs up to the main front window. And Oakley, our little dog, was sitting on top of the recliner, the back of it, just looking at me. And in that moment, I was like, I wish you were out here with me. <laughs> I was mad at her for being warm and cozy. 
She was just watching me all condescendingly, <laughs> judging me. Like, I'm so warm, you're so cold. And then, you know, in that moment, I wanted to trade places. I know this is a crazy illustration. I wanted to trade places with my dog. But then I started thinking, yeah, she has it easy. But that's the only life she'll ever know. I know that's a silly illustration, but, you know, we start looking at the world and we think, man, they have it so easy. Uh, man, they, life is just easy. They don't have to be restricted. They have all day Sunday to do whatever they want. They don't have to give to mission so they have a nicer truck and their bills are being paid. And they can just do whatever they want. They're not restricted by dress standards. They're not restricted by anything. They just do whatever they want. They have it so easy. But then you start thinking, but that's the only life they'll ever know. Somebody without Jesus Christ, all they'll ever have is what they have. And before we look at them and start to get a little bit jealous of the life they get to live, just remember what you get with a relationship with God. See, while Oakley's taking naps, I have an opportunity to live for and know the God of heaven. I get an opportunity to make an eternal difference. Now, does it come with hardships? You tell me. Does it come with hardships? Yeah. Are there days that we feel ready to throw in the towel? Yeah. But no matter how hard life gets, I wouldn't trade it for what Oakley has. That's not living. And see, Babylon, listen, Babylon is not living. The world's life is not, that's not living. No existence is better than that existence. And even if it means that you death to self, and that you live for God and you make a bunch of tough choices and you have to make a, have a lot of restrictions and this and that. Listen, I'm telling you that this life over here, this is the life worth living. Do you believe that? Is if the, it's the difference between a life that wins and a life that loses. And I'm just asking you tonight, have you made up your mind? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had made up their mind that no matter what the world threatens them with, no matter what the world offers them, no matter the ease the world promises, that no matter what hardships they face, a life with God, that's the life worth living. And I just want to remind us tonight that life with God is the life worth living. Don't get caught up in the struggles. Don't lose sight in the hardships. Don't get drawn into the temptations. Because what they're offering is not nearly as good as it seems. Because like Oakley, that's the only life they'll ever have. But we get to know the Lord. We get to serve the God of heaven. We get to have a personal relationship with a holy God. And listen, God is worth more than anything you'll ever lose. Even your life. So death or deliverance, well, in the moment, it may feel like you want to choose deliverance. But really, in the end, the best option is death. In other words, placing your life in the hands of God and letting him determine the outcome. That's the life worth living. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
have an opportunity to, to have an invitation here. And maybe it's just time to maybe track, to, to calibrate here tonight. Maybe there's things in your life that have caused you just to look beyond uh, the Lord and think, boy, there's something easier out there. I, that's what I want. And really, in the end, it's not better. The life with God is better. That's the life worth living. You look at Babylon, and I'm just telling you tonight, according to this text, that's not the life worth living. It's not living. No, sticking it out with God, standing for him even when it's hard, no matter what you're tempted with, no matter what you're threatened with, no matter what the world promises, it is always better in the end. It is always a win. It is always a gain. It's never a loss to just st stick with God. He is worth more than anything you can be tempted by or threatened by or promised. God is always worth more. Let's pray.